You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We'd like to read this morning from uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, uh, reading from verse 17, and the reason for reading from that point, I hope, will become apparent as uh, the sermon proceeds. But uh, Luke 18 and from verse 17, uh, Jesus uh, is at the end of a little bit of kingdom teaching and he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. I wonder what are the questions that you hear most regularly? Have you seen a good film recently? Uh, Which of the supermarkets offer best value for money? Or perhaps, how do I get rid of these wrinkles? None of these questions is of ultimate importance, for they do not have a crucial bearing on how we live our lives, unlike the question put to Jesus by the rich young ruler. What must I do to gain eternal life? And as we look at this passage, I want us to consider what is a revealing question and secondly, a surprising response and finally, a a multiple reaction. Uh, First of all, the revealing question. Uh, This question reveals a serious spiritual inquiry. You see, Jesus was used to being bombarded uh, by the religious establishment a variety of questions designed to test and to entrap him. 
But this young man must have been like a breath of fresh air. Mark tells us that he ran up to Jesus and fell at his feet. His question is both urgent and earnest, as if written suddenly and powerfully in bold letters on the blackboard of his mind by the Holy Spirit. Once the alarm bell of eternity begins to ring, it is not easily switched off. Oh, there are some who try to deaden the sound by smothering it with the pillow of community service by their busy social diaries or long working days. Others drown it in a sea of alcohol. Many hope that the sounds of others will distract from the ringing of God's internal alarm. But this young ruler had the good spiritual sense to bring a serious question to Jesus. What must I do to gain eternal life? Uh, But you will notice that inherent in his approach is a deficient view of goodness. Jesus is addressed here as good teacher. And by challenging that designation, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is really saying, you have no right to call me good unless you recognize me for who I am the eternal son of God. You see, this young man had a superficial view of goodness. He saw it as something that was humanly attainable. I'm sure he would have described himself as a good ruler in the way that he described Jesus as a good teacher. Wonder how many people You know, there are perhaps some here this morning who would say, well, I am basically a good person. Today, goodness is seen as something that's relative rather than absolute. And I want to suggest that we often make two mistakes in measuring goodness. First, we measure ourselves against the imperfections of others instead of against the perfection of others of God. It is always easy, as we were saying to the children, to find someone else uh, to compare ourselves against. And we say, compare to him, I'm a good person. Compare to her, I'm really pretty good. A man stopped outside a clockmaker's shop every morning on his way to work. And he synchronized his watch with a large clock that he found in the shop window. And one day the owner of the shop came out and asked him what kind of work he did. And the man replied that he was the timekeeper at the local factory whose job it was to sound the horn at 5 p.m. announcing the end of the working day. And because his watch kept such poor time, He synchronized it each morning with the clock in the shop window. And the embarrassed clockmaker replied, 
unfortunately, my clock doesn't keep very good time. And so I adjust it daily when I hear the factory's closing horn at five o'clock. You see, whenever we set our understanding of goodness against other men, instead of against God, then our view of goodness becomes increasingly flawed, deficient. The measure we are to use mustn't ever be the goodness of men, but the goodness of God. Secondly, there are some who think of themselves good because they measure themselves quite superficially against a selective number of God's laws. How often have I heard folks say, but I'm not a murderer, (laughs) I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a bank robber. And they make only a superficial and external application of these laws. Now, there are two ways of dealing with that. And the first Jesus deals with here, while the second he addresses, you may remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus drives the law of God inward. And he says to the man who says, I'm not an adulterer. If you look at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. And to the man who says, I'm not a murderer, call your brother a fool and you're guilty of murder. Character assassination is murder. So there is this very superficial view of goodness around today. But thirdly, his questioning betrays some critical cultural conditioning. You will remember that the religious leaders of the day taught what was essentially a performance-related system of salvation, which focused essentially on the ability of man, and it stressed law-keeping as a way of securing God's favor. Salvation became something that was humanly achievable by doing the right things. And so this question, you will notice, takes the form, what must I do? Salvation that is performance-related has a universal appeal. A Christian teacher friend of mine in Pakistan was constantly being asked by his Muslim friends, what he had to do to gain God's acceptance. They wanted the Christian equivalent, if you like, of the five pillars of Islam. This is what we do to seek God's approval. What do you do? How do you earn it? You see, they could not conceive of a faith that didn't rest on the foundation of human performance. And so the rich ruler's question, serious though it was, important though it was, was flawed in its framing. And so he meets with a surprising response. Jesus engages with people in a very refreshing manner. He never churns out religious platitudes. But he provides 
tailor-made responses to the needs of others. And it does appear to us, does it not, from the text, that Jesus appears to make a quite surprising answer. He says to the young man, you know the commandments. And if you know your Bibles well, you'll be thinking, goodness, is Jesus really teaching that eternal life can be earned through law-keeping? That's something that the religious establishment taught. And with such devastating effect, driving some to despair and others to uh, hypocrisy. We need uh, to step back a minute and remind ourselves of what took place when the law was originally published. God gave the Ten Commandments, you will remember, with one hand, but he established the sacrificial system which made provision for lawbreakers with the other. There was no expectation on the part of God that fallen man could keep the law perfectly. Don't misunderstand me. Perfection remained God's standard. But he also revealed a gracious path of forgiveness for the lawbreaker. What then does the law do? Well, by revealing God's perfection, it convinces man of his lack of it. Paul argues that it is a schoolmaster to lead us to or to point us to Christ. The law, by exposing our imperfections, causes us to look for perfection, the perfection that God requires outside of ourselves. And this perfection, this goodness or righteousness is only found in Christ. Salvation is never a matter of trusting in my imperfect performance, but in trusting in the performance of another. Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the terminus of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Now remember, this ruler thought himself a good man and eternal life a humanly achievable goal. He just had to fine-tune his performance. And so Jesus, by pointing to law-keeping, is in a sense doing what the book of Proverbs describes as answering a fool according to his folly. Jesus knows exactly where he is going in answering the rich ruler in this way. And so, secondly, notice Jesus purposefully selects commands that are taken from the second table of the law, that is, commandments that deal with human relationships like adultery, murder, theft, false witness, and the honoring of our parents. What a relief, says the ruler. All these I've kept since I was a boy. And he's clearly hoping 
that Jesus is going to say, on the basis of this brilliant performance, you have nothing to worry about. Eternal life is yours. But that optimistic bubble bursts when Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. Now, owning riches is not sinful. But as we heard last Sunday, it's our attitude towards wealth that is critical. And when we turn to the first table of the law, which deals primarily with our relationship with God we find that this man had broken the first commandment. In what way? He didn't give God first place. His riches had displaced God from that prime position. Wealth is my God. He had broken the second commandment, forbidding the worship of idols. Wealth was his idol. Oh, it could equally have been his job or his hobbies or his relationships. But what is happening here is that his lack of righteousness is being exposed. He's not a good man as God measures goodness. He is a lawbreaker the bubble of having met God's demands all of a sudden has been exploded. Thirdly, Jesus' concern is to shift attention from performance to trust. Having burst the ruler's balloon that read, I'm a law keeper and good enough for God, Jesus did not intend to hand him another balloon that read, now that I've got rid of my wealth, I'm a law keeper and good enough for God. As far as eternal life is concerned, the bottom line is not human performance, but trust in Christ. And it's no accident, no accident at all, that all three gospel writers who record the story of the rich young ruler preface it with the words of verse 17 that we read at the very beginning of our reading. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What's so important about verse 17. Well, the essential qualities of childlikeness are a dependent and a trusting spirit, are they not? When our daughter was small, she loved to walk along at the top of high walls. And uh, when she got to the end, she would jump, jump into waiting arms. And one day we were out with a friend who had just come home uh, from abroad and he heard about this practice and when we got to the end of the wall he held up his hands and he said jump I'll catch you and she had a look at him and shook her head and said no way daddy catch me she was saying I don't know you and if I don't know you I can't trust you and if I don't trust you I'm certainly not going to jump into your arms 
Jesus wanted the young man to say no to his wealth and yes to Jesus as the source of his trust for the future. You see, his wealth wasn't only this man's idol, but it was his safety net, a kind of contingency plan for when things went wrong in life. It was his bank balance that enabled him to sleep at night. Like so many today, he placed his security in his possessions. And whenever we insist on having another safety net, we do not display childlike trust and dependency that throws ourselves into the arms of a waiting heavenly father and so we move on to see the multiple reaction uh, to this uh, very interesting conversation that was going on verse 23 tells us that when the rich ruler heard Jesus reply he became very sad the other gospels tell us he went away sorrowful his early enthusiasm is extinguished. And that can happen when people don't get the answer from Jesus that they want. There is never a neutral response to Jesus and his teaching. Indeed, it drives men in one of two directions, either towards God or away from God. Jesus, if you like, is a bit uh, like the rock that lies in a riverbed in Wyoming. I'm sure Will will know the name of the river. As the rushing water strikes the rock, it is divided in such a way that it either eventually flows into the, the Pacific Ocean or into the Atlantic Ocean. Thousands of miles apart, depending on how it responds to the rock. Depending on how it reacts to the rock, it goes this way or that way. Jesus and his word produce extreme 180 degree responses, driving us either Godward or away from God. Now, some have criticized Jesus here for letting this influential, wealthy man walk away so easily. And they've asked, why not make an exception? Lower your standards and make room for such a man. Shout to him, come back, we'll work something out. And that's what many churchmen have done to increase their following. We'll change our standards. We'll modify our teaching. We'll do anything but lose you. And we mustn't ever confuse that kind of slushy indulgence with love. True love wants the best. And the best thing Jesus could have done for this man is tell the truth. And let him move on. Let him ponder his lack of childlike trust and his superficial understanding of goodness. Indeed, Mark doesn't want us to think that Jesus was indifferent to this man. And he very purposefully writes in his gospel, Jesus loved him. He loved him. 
And it was love that caused Jesus to answer as he did. It was love that let this man walk away. It was love that refused to lower the standard. Secondly, consider the reaction of the crowd to both this encounter and Jesus' teaching in verses 24 and 25. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The imagery identifies for us the deceitfulness of riches, which seeks to persuade men that by grasping onto their wealth, they will retain hold of a safety net that can be deployed as soon as it becomes hard for us to trust in God. Well, you've got this to fall back on. What a false sense of security it seeks to create. And so when the crowd asks Jesus in verse 26, who then can be saved? We need to try and follow their logic here. If this rich young man who is highly thought of in our community, one of our very best law keepers, isn't good enough for God, then what chance do we possibly have? It's an understandable observation. But Jesus allays those fears in verse 27 by saying what's impossible with men is possible with God. Simply put, Jesus is saying it is impossible for men to make themselves good enough for God to score 100% to satisfy God's standard of perfection. That's a humanly unachievable goal. And that impossibility must first be grasped. If we are to marvel at how God achieves the impossible, follow, uh, if you will, Paul's argument in uh, the book of Romans, uh, the early chapters, verses 1 to 18 to 320. Paul is addressing all of humanity, the religious and irreligious, the best of men and the worst of men, as they gather around, holding up their little balloons that say, we are good enough for God. And every single balloon, Paul bursts. And he concludes, there's none righteous. There's nobody good enough for God. No one can make himself good enough for God, including the rich young ruler, including you, including me. And it's into this darkness of deflated humanity that a a light of incandescent uh, proportion shines in verse 21. Uh, Let me just read that for you. But now, A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who uh, believe. Amazing words. And Paul is saying, what's impossible for man the ability to give God the perfect righteousness that is going to satisfy his holiness is now something that God himself provides. 
the, the but God in verse 21 is the greatest but God in all of Scripture. And the language Paul uses here describes a righteousness that comes in from the side, from an unexpected direction. And God holds up the righteousness of Christ and says, put this on. This perfect righteousness qualifies you for heaven. The righteousness is not earned, it is received by childlike faith. Jesus' death for you has made this great exchange possible. He takes our sin. He makes available his righteousness, his goodness. Now, Paul is not here introducing a new doctrine. For this righteousness, he tells us, comes apart from the law and has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Do you see what he's saying? God's plan of handing out a righteousness that is humanly unattainable is found in the Old Testament. It's not new. This is God's plan. This is why Jesus came. This is the significance of his death. In order that we may be clothed in his righteousness. It is a glorious doctrine of substitution. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. And its roots are found in the Old Testament scriptures because its origin is found in the very heart of God himself. The wonder of this doctrine was brought home to me. Uh, years ago, our family were visiting a, a hill farm during the lambing season and uh, great excitement as we watched the lambs being born. Uh, some, Unfortunately, some of the ewes died in the process and sometimes it would be the lambs that died. And, you know, you thought, well, what's going to happen here? Surely the orphaned lamb will be taken on uh, by the mum who's lost uh, her lamb and she'll uh, care for him and feed him and so on. But something very strange happened. These uh, uh, lambless ewes butted away all of the orphan lambs. They wouldn't let them near them because they smelled. It's not a smell I recognize. Get away. And we said to the, the sheep farmer, what do you do in that kind of situation? Obviously, too many lambs to bring them all into the kitchen and feed them. He says, well, if I can take the fleece of the dead lamb and wrap it around the orphaned lamb, what happens is, as it's introduced to the ewe, the ewe sniffs and says, I recognize that smell. That's the family smell. Uh, come, you're welcome. Come and feed. Come home, if you like. And I thought, what a brilliant illustration that is of what's happening as far as our salvation is concerned. We come to God with our goodness. 
and he sniffs and he says, sorry, not good enough. It's not, it's not the family smell. It's not perfect righteousness away with you. But when we come clothed in Jesus' perfect righteousness, God smells and says, you're welcome. Come in, come home. Many today, like the rich young ruler, are asking the question, what must I do? But God replies, shift the focus of your attention and see what I have done. Look there. Many want to boast of their personal performance and unpack their own goodness. But these are bubbles just waiting to be burst. And it's only when they are burst that people are prepared to look outside of themselves for the performance of another, for the goodness of Christ that comes to them as a result of his death upon the cross. If you're not yet a believer this morning, Determine today to make this righteousness of Jesus your very own. It's received after true repentance and a faith that commits herself unreservedly to the Jesus who died for you. We don't, of course, pretend that discipleship is not a costly business. And you'll notice that Peter says here, we've left all to follow you. But what marvelous reassurance is given him by Jesus and indeed every believer down through the ages, verses 29 uh, to 30, where Jesus says, uh, no matter what you've left behind, you'll receive more in this life and in eternity eternal life ask those if you if you're really concerned about this ask those who have followed Jesus for 20 years 30 years 40 years 50 years and they will tell you that God does not impoverish our lives he enriches the lives of his people How could we doubt that when he has given us himself? Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you for your living word. We thank you for the number of times that it points us away from ourselves and our own performance and uh, supposed goodness to the perfection of Christ, to his death upon the cross for us, to the righteousness that he has provided. Father, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for pride. We simply humble ourselves before you, amazed 
that you should at such great cost to yourself provide for us a goodness we could never attain to. And for this, we bring the thanksgiving and the worship of our hearts to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.